Okay, everybody, we're going to get started. Can I have everybody's attention? How is the sound in the room? It's good. You can hear me. Excellent. So I'm going to welcome all of you from the back to find a seat and tell you how impressed I am that you're all here. Um, for those of you um, who got a phone call from Tali Zisman, glad you're here. How many people were called by Tali Zisman, by the way, to come here? I was. Okay. So Tali and, and Shirley and their friends are here, and I'm really pleased that so many members of our congregation and community are here. I'm Rabbi Sidney Mintz, and um, I wanted to, where is Lily? There's Lily. Lily Navet is um, the, represent, the representative of the IDI here in San Francisco. And where's Tali Zisman? There is Tali. Wave to Tali. Tali Zisman. So Tali took me out to lunch uh, and talked to me about the IDI every month for about uh, a year. Um, it's a great way to get uh, a delicious lunch. But he said, this is an organization that started in 1990, but unfortunately, so many American Jews, people who love Israel and want to see a different future for the Jewish people and for the state of Israel, don't yet know about the IDI, about the Israel Democracy Institute. And so we're here tonight to be in conversation about what's happening, what happened in the aftermath of the Israeli elections, and what we have to look forward to if we can get more people involved. Um, and we're really thrilled to have representatives of the IDI. Um, Dr. Jesse Ferris is here, who um, joined the IDI in the fall of, nine, of 2008. Where is Jesse? There he is. Hello to Jesse. Um, he is the vice president of strategy. You'll get to meet him after um, John Rothman grills the president. I mean, is in conversation with the president. Um, John Rothman, who is a dear friend of ours, a member of a lifelong member of Congregation Emmanuel. Um, you, you started your membership here in 1850, I believe. So we're thrilled to have you. John um, is a radio talk show host on KGO 810 in San Francisco. Um, if you're somebody who is a late nighter or an early morning riser, you heard John. He is an author, he's a political commentator, and he knows more about Israel than many people. Um, and he's the perfect person to speak with the president of the IDI tonight, who I had the pleasure of dining with. Um, and Yochanan Plesner was appointed the president of the Israel Democracy Institute a little over a year ago. And he has a fascinating history, although he was born in England. Uh, he came to Israel when he was two months old, and he has, after serving in a very elite unit, was brought into the government and served in the Knesset as the top guy in the Kadima platform. Familiar with that? And he served in the Knesset until just a couple years ago when he was brought on to be the president of the Israel Democracy Institute. Uh, he has a lot to say, a lot of knowledge about what Israel is today and what it can be in a beautiful future. I also want to just give a shout out to our Rabbi Emeritus, Rabbi Stephen Pierce. I'm going to go and sit next to. But I will call John Rothman, and I would call Yochanan up here to please join us for a wonderful and deliberate conversation about the IDI. Oh, you want to do that first? But first, a movie. IDI scholars are taking their policy papers off the bookshelf and into the field. IDI has championed the cause of political reform for years. 
Recently, the Knesset passed a series of laws known as the Governance Laws. IDI experts made dozens of appearances before the Knesset's Constitution Committee, briefed its members on the implications of the proposed laws, and successfully influenced key aspects of the legislation. Despite these achievements, much remains to be done. בנושא חוק המשילות, ופתאום הבנו שבאמת מקשיבים לנו. אז גם הבנו את גודל האחריות. ובנוסח הסופי של החוק, מה שחשוב זה לא רק מה שנכלל בו, אלא מה שגם מה שהצלחנו למנוע מלהיכלל בו. The social protests of 2011 underscored that the Israeli public seeks greater transparency in decision-making and wants to know where tax money is going and what the government's priorities are. IDI heeded this call. מאז שנת 2012 הפכתי להיות סוכנת מכירות של רעיון הממשל הפתוח והשקיפות במדינת ישראל. גייסתי כסף מגוגל... Let's get right to it. I'm John Rothman. I'm delighted to be here. And my job tonight is to ask tough questions. And you will then have an opportunity to do the same thing. I do want to acknowledge Tali Zisman. I want to acknowledge him because we are really here tonight because he came to the Israel Action Committee and proposed this program, and that's why we're here. So, Tali, stand up and take the appropriate bow. And, of course, our thanks to Rabbi Mintz for uh, joining us as well. Uh, well, let's, let's get right to it. The simple, uncomplicated question of how the politics of Israel works. The election is over. The result is known. Can you describe briefly the way the process works and where we are today? Well, uh, is that okay? Good. So first of all, good evening and thanks for having me. And uh, thank you, Naftali Zisman and uh, Rabbi Mintz and for Temple Emanuel for hosting us and for you for taking the time in a rainy San Francisco evening to join us. Um, how does the system work? You know, for us it's, it's trivial, but it's actually not... Uh, Israel has a proportional uh, representation parliamentary system, which means that we have 120 MKs, and in order to form a government, you need a majority of at least 61 to support your government in the Knesset. That means that not the leader of the largest party is prime minister. Uh, whoever wins the election is whoever is, manages to get the support of 61 MKs from uh, the different parties, and, we, and we, he has to constantly preserve and maintain this support in order to remain in office. We should point out that in the previous election, Zippy Livni and Kadima, you were a part of that party, actually won the most seats in Knesset, but unable to assemble a coalition. It was then the task of Benjamin Netanyahu to form a government, so we understand the nature of a coalition. Right. In 2009, we got 28 seats, and the Likud uh, uh, was 27. Seven, right. So both parties were holding uh, uh, victory speeches simultaneously. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, ultimately, obviously, the, whoever was able to build an alliance with enough parties forms the government. Okay, let's deal quickly with this, because all of you know, right now, the government has 61 seats. It's a very narrow coalition. Uh, if one minister uh, or one member of Knesset is traveling abroad and there's a vote, Netanyahu is in trouble. So I want you to explain the way a coalition is built and what the nature of this coalition is. 
Well, the basic, um, I was chief whip of the coalition between 2006 and 2009 when I was a member of parliament and, uh, and uh, so I was in charge of making sure that we win in the different, uh, that we have a majority in the different votes. And the way the Knesset operates is that you need to constantly uh, build a majority in the different committees, in the assembly, for the different uh, pieces of legislation that the government brings in, or you have to ensure that whatever is not, does not come from the government will be uh, removed from the agenda. Uh, and so to create a majority in order to uh, uh, remove it. Now, this uh, a process of constantly needing to build a majority means that you need to have enough foot soldiers in the Knesset that will uh, lift their hand. Now, in a coalition of 61, that means that uh, at any given point in time, we have, say, around um, 27 or 26 ministers and deputy ministers. So you subtract that from the 61 members of the coalition. So it means that you have a little, just a little over 30 members of parliament from the coalition that are available in the Knesset. Many of them are chairmen of committees and so on. It means that the opposition has a lot more active members around and that the coalition constantly has to struggle to get a majority. And, and what usually happens is that the, that the price is paid in terms of the, the actual debate and discussion in the committees is shallower, because they're not actually able to uh, uh, have a majority in all the different committees. So what they do is they in, uh, determine, say, that at 4 o'clock we're going to have the vote. So you can have a very serious discussion between 12 until 4 in the committee, and then at 4 o'clock, you know, 5 to 4, you all of a sudden have like seven coalition members just coming, voting on a, on a legislation that they have no clue what they're voting on, and then they move on to... Gee, it sounds just like Congress. <laughs> now, let me ask you, because... I have the privilege, since I'm not, uh, you know, I have no intimate knowledge of how the U.S. Congress works, but it looks like a very serious place to me from the outside. So, compared to the Israeli... And for us, the Knesset seems very serious, well, so you know. equal. Now, let me ask you, because... Israel is a vital, vibrant democracy. Clearly, there have been changes in the democracy. For a short period of time, there was direct election of prime minister. I want you to describe the old system, the system that when it was adopted, and why Israel decided to go back to the old system, and the role of the IDI in bringing that about. Okay, the, the old... Israel had one, you know, the proportional representation system since the foundation of the state in 1948 until 1992 when a legislation was changed. In, and the uh, direct election of prime minister was introduced. We should point out the first direct election of prime minister was in 1996 when and Mr. Mr. Perez against Benjamin Netanyahu. Go ahead. So. In nine, but the actual legislation in order to introduce the, the, the direct election was uh, uh, voted on in, in 1992. Now, why was the vote? That was the result in 1990, the dysfunctionality of the Israeli political system reached uh, a point where there was what we call in Hebrew oh, the, the stinking uh, maneuver or uh, where uh, where really Israelis understood, I won't go into the details of that maneuver, but uh, Israelis understood that the current, uh, uh, the, the current system 
does not deliver, that it's, that, that really what happens is that uh, various wheelings and dealings of MKs that are looking after their own niche sectorial interests or their personal interests on account of the broader national interest and therefore at the expense of, of, the, of the broader national interest and that something ought to change. Now, for two years there was a campaign for change that, uh, that, uh, that really gained momentum among the Israeli uh, public. And ultimately, just before the election uh, took place, uh, there was a, a, a vote whereby uh, uh, there was a majority that agreed to change the system to a direct election. Now, the direct election, the need for change was, uh, there was a serious need for change, but the remedy that was introduced, i.e. the system of direct election and voting in two, uh, in two ballots, one for the, uh, whoever is going to be prime minister, the other one for the party, led to absolutely the opposite, or uh, it was an unintended consequence. And what the outcome was that uh, while Israelis elected the prime minister, they used the other ballot to vote for whatever niche is, is a single issue, single interest party that they had in mind in that moment. And it led to really the uh, increasing fragmentation and, 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 uh, and, and, and in effect, uh, disintegration of the political system. What IDI, uh, uh, before my time, so I can take credit for something that I had nothing to do with, um, although I was then in the 90s an assistant to the president that I replaced a year ago. <laughs> so, uh, but um, led a public, uh, ongoing, consistent public campaign to cancel the system of direct election that really was in, in danger of wrecking the Israeli democracy. And, and, and there was a window of opportunity after Prime Minister Sharon was elected in 2001, uh, and it was inserted into the coalition uh, uh, agreement and then the system was just changed. So sometimes, you know, we're very cynical. How can things change and it will forever? And, and, and the, if you understand the workings of the political system, you understand that there's windows of, of, of opportunity where major change can be introduced. And I believe that now uh, is a beginning of a period where there's a growing awareness among Israelis, among the political uh, pundits in the political system, that the current situation is so dysfunctional that it cannot continue. And, and I don't know if it will happen in four months, in a year and four months, in, in two years and four months, but once this government also will crumble because it was, we will discover and, and the prime minister will discover that it's basically impossible to make decisions, there will be again a window of opportunity for change. I can elaborate what kind of scenarios can lead to that, but we see it as our goal now to offer a coherent blueprint for an alternative and to uh, campaign in, in a, in a nonpartisan way among the Israeli public and among uh, decision-making uh, uh, groups in order to ensure that this window of opportunity is exploited in order to introduce a system that will bring more governance and more stability. Okay, we should point out the IDI is not left, it's not right. It has people from the left and the right who are involved, who believe there is a need for political reform. So let's be clear about what the IDI has in mind. One of the things that you or the IDI was instrumental in 
was raising the percentage that you need to sit in the Knesset. In the old days, Yochanan and I could have formed our own political party, decided to buy freezers, as Flato Sharon did, for enough people to win one or two seats in the Knesset. One. You could actually enter with one. One. And so what has happened is there is now a change. So the percentage now that you need to win a seat in the Knesset is? 3.25. And your goal is to raise that or no, not? No, we think that the, the, the remedy, the further remedy to uh, uh, strengthen our, our parliamentary system and to bring about governance and stability is to the, 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 the point now, the point that you have to, the, the crucial Achilles heel or the key to change is now not in ra an additional raise in the threshold. That remedy has uh, proved itself. And, uh, and now we're, you know, it, you know if you, you can change it a little. But even if you raise it to 5%, it what won't difference? make a dramatic change. Okay, so let me a ask. dramatic yep. change would occur if you change the way a government is formed. Okay, describe to me, and this is trying to get to the bottom line. If the IDI proposal could be presented tonight, what is the electoral reform that you would like to see in Israel? So it, it, the, the goal is to rebuild a two-party or two-anchor system where you have two major parties, center-right, center-left, that either of them runs the country and not fragments and fragmented uh, 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 parties and a disintegrated parliament that is ungovernable. How do you How do we do that? How do we recreate this two-anchor system? By introducing, uh, by introducing a few relatively minimal changes. One, the uh, determination that the leader of the largest party is prime minister. So in the night following the election, you know who the prime minister is because you know who... who even if it's by one seat. Yeah, even if it's by one seat. Okay. The leader of the largest party is prime minister. You complement it by saying that uh, he does not he or she do not need a vote of confidence in the Knesset in order to swear in their government. Much like, you know, when a president here is elected, he doesn't need, there are maybe confirmations for specific uh, portfolios, but the government itself, the, the president uh, appoints. So you do not need a vote of confidence in order to approve your government. Uh, if you do not pass the budget, it doesn't cause automatically for the government to fall and to have an early election, which is the current situation here. And you take away the Knesset's uh, ability to uh, uh, dissolve itself. By introducing those four changes, there are a few other elements, but those are the key elements. So would it be for a set term, four-year term? It will very much uh, increase the likelihood that it will be a four-term government. So let me ask There you. are some uh, um, mechanisms that will enable, if the, government, if the prime minister sees that he can't govern, and that he can't pass a, budget, pass a budget and do ad hoc deals and so on, he has the discretion to call for an early election. Or there's another mechanism, what we call a constructive no confidence. Now, having been in the Knesset, uh, I can share with you one thing. It's easy to get a majority for a no vote, a majority against whoever is in, in, in the government. You know, so you can have Bennett and the Arab parties voting if, if they're out, and he say has 55 seats, you can have a majority to dissolve the Knesset, to throw away the government, but to have a positive majority, say Bennett and the, 
Arab party is a positive majority of let's you have uh, uh, that's a constructive no confidence vote that means if you want to throw away this government you have to vote confidence in a new government that is a much higher threshold because they have to positively constructively agree on something else and therefore once you uh, 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 and that's the only mechanism that can replace a uh, 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 government short of the prime minister himself dissolving the Knesset. Okay, now I have a question, because you were part of a political party called Kadima. In two elections, Kadima did very well, and now it doesn't exist anymore. It, it vanished. So the question would become, if you shifted to the system you're proposing, where there are two major blocks, it would not, as I understand it, preclude the creation of a new political party. How would it affect if Kadima wanted to be recreated, or with the Mafdal, what if the religious parties, how do they figure in? It basically provides an incentive, a very, very strong incentive for parties to get together and to run together. So you would have a, a, a sort of alliances, a center-left and a center-right alliances that run and compete against each other. It provides a very strong incentive for voters to vote for, the, for one of those uh, um, uh, uh, two blocks. And, uh, and post-election, once you have a prime minister, head of the largest party, it also uh, gives them a lot more power, him or her, when they negotiate uh, to build a coalition because the, the, they don't need the other parties in order to be prime minister. So they can actually negotiate and trade based on an agenda. You give me part of my agenda, I'll give you something for your agenda, but it's not that what the system today is the prime minister gives everything just in order to survive. And actually, there's no one in there looking for the national interest. Okay, let me use as an example the right. Today you have two major forces. You have the Likud, and you have Naftali Bennett and his party. And I'm only going to focus on them. At one point, Naftali Bennett worked for Benjamin Netanyahu. They were associates. He was his chief of staff. staff. Then they split. In a system as you would construct it, as the IDI proposes, how would that change the dynamic? Most probably they would run together. If they could agree, but what if they couldn't agree? They, 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 they have such a strong incentive, they would agree. And if not, then the smaller one would pretty much, his, uh, the tendency of the voters would be to vote for the larger party because they want to affect whoever is going to be prime minister. So that provides a very strong incentive to, to join together. On the one hand, in that negotiation, it would weaken the smaller elements, say Bennett, because it would strengthen the prime minister because uh, he, uh, he's expected to get more votes. On the other hand, he bad, he's in bad need to get the, any marginal uh, support because it's a first past the post, right. whoever gets more votes. So it strengthens both of them in the negotiation and provides them a very strong incentive to go together. So let's be clear. The but, I, but I suggest yeah. let's also move to a few other things. We will, we will, yeah. but I want to just clarify because if I'm confused, they're confused. So I think. So basically the key is that whoever wins the most votes, the dominant party becomes prime minister, and that's really the key to the way it works. And we want to reconstruct those two major, more responsible blocks. It provides an incentive for parties also okay. to, to, be, uh, to compete for the center ground and not to... Uh, it weakens the extremists and the sectorial parties. 
It actually provides and extends the window of opportunity for mainstream Zionist forces to do the right thing and to, you know, and to lead the country in a better direction. So I think that's, uh, uh, that's a key change because what we're seeing today it almost doesn't matter who wins the election. Yeah. The, the terms are so short. They're constantly, and, uh, and you know, I, I, I don't know. Let me ask you this. Not only change, but constantly an ongoing negotiation for one's survival and, and dealing with petty politics and so on, rather than what you would expect from national leadership to deal with the fundamental complex problems and offer long-term serious solutions. Okay. Let, let me shift to a different area. Uh, Israel does not have a constitution. It operates the way Great Britain does with basic law. So in the Knesset, basic law is essentially constitutional law. Does the IDI advocate for the creation of an Israeli constitution? Look, the fact that we don't have, a, I don't know what, you know, very few people understand how fragile the Israeli democracy is because basically what I realized when you sit in the Knesset, a simple majority can change everything. The fundamentals of the system can be completely changed because we don't have a constitution that safeguards the basic uh, elements of the system, of the democratic system, that protects minorities, freedom of speech, uh, equality, the, ba the, the basic um, uh, values and norms that are part of every uh, democratic culture are not protected because we don't have a constitution. And the, the basic system, every, everything can change. Even the basic laws, can be most of them can be voted on and changed with a simple majority. So I remember sitting in the, in, on the, in the last, in, in the Knesset, there was, um, for a, a certain political purpose, there was really an onslaught on, on some of the basic democratic uh, uh, institutions and values that are so dear to us. Give me an right? example. There was a, 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 a um, dozens of pieces of legislation, not one or two. For example, to uh, weaken the Supreme Court, okay. change the way that the uh, judges are elected, um, uh, reduce the authority of the Supreme Court, which is, you know, in our uh, governing, in a country that doesn't have uh, a constitution. Critical. The critical role of the Supreme Court to, uh, 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 to have judicial review over Knesset legislation is absolutely critical. And many times even the Knesset expects the Supreme Court to intervene because the, the Supreme Court would do things that are not so popular and the Supreme Court judges don't have to be reelected. I, I sidetracked you. Go back to the principle of a constitution. Uh, I know that as early as 1949, there was a draft of a constitution. Over the years, I've read at least half a dozen different draft proposals. One of the things the IDI advocates is a constitution. So we, we came with a, um, with a, we have on our staff about you know, 12, uh, the leading intellectuals in Israeli society, professors. We have five deans of law schools. And uh, you know, except for me, we have very serious people in the organization. <laughs> so, so we sat together and, 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 and developed a blueprint for constitution. And, and there are so many complex issues in, that come to the questions of religion and state that you have to come up with some kind of a balanced formula and so on. And um, uh, religion and state, civic issues and so on. We came up with a blueprint. There was an attempt to pass it in the Knesset. Uh, 
but at some point it reached a, a, a wall. When I uh, was a member of the Law and Constitution Committee between 2009 and 2013, how many uh, uh, of, the, of the committee's uh, um, uh, meetings or discussions were uh, allocated to the Constitution? It was the Constitution Committee. How many? How many? Uh, I, it's a quiz. Okay. Anybody want to guess? I'll say three. Zero. Oh, wait. Zero? Yeah. Who would say such a thing? Tell me, is that right? So between 2006 and 2009, the Law and Constitution Committee was headed by Menachem Ben Sasson, who was my colleague and a very dear friend, and he's now the president of the Hebrew. And he had a goal of trying to pass a constitution. I always thought that politically it wasn't that viable, so um, I, 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 I thought he's making a mistake, although it's a very worthy effort. Now, the IDI was his closest partner in working together, and there was really a fabulous document that could be adopted, but there was ultimately the veto of the ultra-Orthodox parties that killed it. Uh, in 2009, there wasn't even an attempt. Uh, the, the late, uh, and, and, and again, a dear friend, but uh, an ideological foe, Dudu Rotem, who actually died two days just died. ago. Just died. Yeah, at age 66, he just woke up and died. A very, a very nice and friendly guy. But Great we guy. were, I was in, with him in the in the committee. He was the chairman uh, from Lieberman's party, and we were constantly arguing. But we were, you know, constantly after finishing to argue, going and having lunch together and talking about our families. And he was a very nice person. I was very sad to hear that he died, and. Um, so he basically didn't allocate any, uh, any of the... Who said zero? You get the prize. So, I don't know what it is, but you got it. So it's not our goal now to try and pass a constitution sure. because I don't think it's politically uh, viable. And even if it's politically viable, given some of the trends in the Knesset today, the constitution that will come out of that Knesset, I prefer not having a constitution. <laughs> So, um, um, but what we are doing is we're protecting, defending, promoting Israel's constitutional values and constitutional institutions. Explain what that means. It means, for example, that we are we have a a a, a center for uh, for uh, uh, promoting and, and and strengthening Israel's democratic institutions and democratic values. What it what does it mean? It means that we are, uh, I'll give you an example of an institution, the Supreme Court, the legislation that was uh, aimed in order to, uh, uh, I would say even attack civil society organizations, freedom of speech, uh, uh, freedom of the press, um, uh, legislation that, uh, that is uh, designed to uh, uh, affect the equal status of our Arab minority. Uh, the nation-state bill that wasn't really, that was trying to skew uh, the, the balance between our Jewish and democratic uh, uh, components of our national character. There was a, an array of, of legislation that we were really at the forefront. Both, that's how my relationship with IDI was created. They were basically providing me with the R&D, the paperwork, the wisdom, the, the, uh, the intellectual ammunition, the conferencing capability, the public legitimacy, 
and, and I was in the Knesset. I was the de facto chairman of, of the largest faction, although we were largest, but we were in opposition. And the truth is that although a lot of these uh, 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 initiatives were put forward, very, very few ultimately passed, and even those that passed were, were significantly watered down. So a lot of it was rhetoric, emotion, populistic discourse, and it continued in between 2013 and 2015, and we expect some of that to continue even now, and we're there uh, ready to protect. So this is the defensive part, but there's also proactive things that we're doing. For example, that are not only related to uh, legislation, uh, but some that are related to policy and some that are related to perception. For example, uh, combating uh, uh, racism in Israeli society that unfortunately uh, exists. It exists, you know, I can, we have, you know, uh, I would say, uh, as we say in Hebrew, tiunim la'onish. Israeli society, Israelis are, are, feel threatened. They have rockets being fired at them. You know, they, there's, uh, terrorists that are getting up and starting stabbing in Jerusalem and so on. A good friend of mine, my father came from Denmark. So friends from Denmark keep telling me if, if and the Danes are, you know, the epitome of uh, a society that is rights respecting and adopting Western universal values and so on. If the Danes would have uh, confronted, you know, a fraction of what we in Israel, their, their response would have been uh, uh, very aggressive, vulgar, non-enlightened, and so on. So we have, uh, uh, you know, a good excuses for, for why there's traction for some uh, xenophobic, uh, come racist views in Israel. But nevertheless, we need to combat them. Nevertheless, we need to protect our society as a rights-respecting, open society, even if we're uh, living in a very tough uh, and threatening neighborhood. So those are the things we're doing. We're, and we're using not only the tools of research and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and producing a, a, a data and, uh, and ideas, but also we're using now powerful messaging tools, uh, conferencing tools, we're building alliances, we're uh, within the Knesset, working a lot with the bureaucracy. Last week we had uh, a conference with the entire educational leadership of the country on uh, how to strengthen uh, education for democratic values and for civic partnership. So, you know, those are some of the things we're doing in order to uh, further promote and protect Israel's constitutional values and institutions without having to pass a constitution. We should point out that Israel is a vital, vibrant democracy. Yeah. But even from David Ben-Gurion, the founding father, there was a question about whether Israel was a genuine democracy. Ben-Gurion advocated electoral reform. And so that debate is part of the debate that we should be engaged in here. But I must ask you there are several other questions, just another five, ten minutes, and then we'll throw it open for your questions. But I want to ask you about your American partners, because the American Advisory Board is very impressive, and people should know that this is not just an Israeli concern, but that there are others who are also concerned. Well, we have uh, our honorary chairman is George Schultz, uh, a very dear friend, a good friend of Israel, not Jewish as you know, but really cares. And I think what really concerns, and, and Gerhard Kasper is our chairman of our advisory council, he was Stanford president, so we actually have a good presence here in the Bay Area. 
And, Abe uh, Sofer. Abe Sofer is, is also in our advisory council. Uh, Judge Breyer, uh, Judge Rosie Abella from the Canadian Supreme Court. Court. You all know Judge Breyer, uh, Stephen Breyer, United States Supreme Court Justice, also a product of this congregation. And, and we have, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, As, by the way, Naftali Bennett's parents were married in this congregation, just so you know that. But go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt or digress. <laughs> I want you to get this sense Actually, of Actually, Naftali Bennett served with me. I served in Sayeret Matkal as a combatant and officer. And we served together. We're the same age. And we were uh, buddies, also doing uh, reserves together. And we're still buddies and we're still friends. But um, uh, we don't agree on, uh, on our politics. Kadima versus, OK. But now, let me, let me just do this for quickly. Several people ask me, because of BDS, the growth of the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, which is not just an American university problem or an American church problem, but now is a broader problem in Europe. Is IDI involved in combating BDS, and how? Uh, yes, and with part of it. BDS, I, in my analysis of this phenomenon, is there's the core group that, uh, that um, created that movement that is ongoing, has nothing to do with Israeli policy, Israeli posture. There's a core group there that is basically uh, uh, opposes the right of having a nation state for the Jewish people in, in, in the land of Israel, uh, anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic, and, and so on. That, that, that is a core group that, that, that projects its message. And vis-a-vis, -vis, uh, uh, and, and in order to neutralize this message, what we're doing, part, part of our intellectual leadership that we offer is that we uh, um, develop the intellectual uh, ammunition that uh, provides the legitimacy for, and roots the idea of a, of a Jewish nation state in the 21st century in universal Western liberal ideas. And so there was, for all sorts of reasons that I won't go into, part of them have to do with what people do in universities and their incentives to, do, uh, uh, to get promoted by publishing in international journals and so on. The, the, the arena of, of, of fresh, uh, high quality, intellectual Zionist thinking is, is in, in some ways dried up and we're renewing it, we're renewing the spring and that provides ammunition, uh, so that's one element. But, but that's to deal with the core of the BDS uh, uh, movement that is there to delegitimize Israel. As I mentioned to you before, the reason why it's also gaining traction is not only because of the, 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 the core anti-Zionist thrust, but because a lot of people who are frustrated with Israeli policy and, 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 and see Israel as the culprit and, and Israel is to blame because of settlement policy and other issues, uh, 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 see Israel as the main uh, reason for lack of progress vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinian issue, they uh, uh, find themselves joining the BDS thrust as a sort of an available option to protest against Israel. And then all of these things get meshed together. Now, what, what has to do with Israeli policy vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the, the West Bank, settlement policy and so on is determined in the Israeli political system. And, uh, and, uh, and I always thought, and again, that I'm not saying as IDI president, uh, that our role uh, is to ensure 
that we try to promote the uh, the the civil dialogue, the, the dialogue and the negotiation with the Palestinians in order to make sure that if uh, uh, things don't work out, Israel will not be uh, blamed for that because you know whoever is blamed, you pay a lot, you, you pay a real tangible international price for that. So there's that element. And there's a third element. So in that element, as, a, as an institute, since we're nonpartisan and we don't deal with the political issues, we don't, we don't, we don't play a role there. We play a role with the fundamental delegitimization effort where we're actually creating the, the ammunition that can then serve our kids in, the, in colleges uh, when, they, uh, when, they, when uh, they're blamed that Zionism is racism and is just a, a, a new form of colonialism and so on. Uh, the third element is that, as you know, Israel is also blamed as being uh, a country that is no longer a real, thriving, prosperous, vital democracy. That it's, uh, uh, and here, our role is to preserve Israel as a vital, thriving democracy. So we do it by uh, defending and thwarting and neutralizing and subverting bad legislation that, uh, as I mentioned before, we do it. We have a very strong program for integration of uh, and equality for, uh, for the Arab minority, because that's a major litmus test for outsiders, whether we are a real functioning democracy or not. I also think it's practical and it makes sense to integrate the Arab minority in, in a better way into the workforce. I mean, it's, it's good business. But it's also a litmus test for those who examine us from the outside. So we do, uh, 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 so we do that as a major effort. And, and I think uh, the other things that we do are more concerned domestically, like electoral reform, like uh, government reform. Those are things that the BDSers and those who are against Israel, they don't care if our government functions properly. This is more of a in the mishpacha type uh, uh, things that be, because we want to ensure that the Jewish state will be you know, prosperous and well-functioning and so on. Now, my job as the questioner was to spend about 50 minutes asking the obvious questions. It is now your turn. So the only parameter here is a question, not a speech. I will take the liberty of interrupting you if you go more than a minute, but I'd hope it's less. And because we've gone now 50 minutes, let me take your questions, stand up, boom it out, so everyone can hear, and we'll be fine. First question. Yes. Okay, the question is, if they've moved to a two-party system, how will money tax what we have in this country? How will that affect an election? And I wish that uh, Mr. Edelson were here to, but go ahead, fire away. Answer. Well, that's a great question, and I think uh, many of you would find it interesting and encouraging. Money doesn't play an important role in Israeli politics. We don't have that problem, the special interests uh, and... and we have special interests, but they, they manifest themselves in other ways, not money. Because I, I was secretary general of the largest party in the country. I was the limitation for uh, 
uh, for donations was, I, I, if I remember correctly, around 900 shekels per household per year, which, you know, about $200. So it's, it, it renders it a superfluous effort to try and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and raise funds for a party. Now, we do have an element of raising funds for primaries, but even there, the, uh, it's, it's actually a, a low amount. The maximum in a, in a, in, as an individual that you're allowed to spend is, 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 is around maximum $100,000, and the maximum per individual donor maybe $2,000. So you don't have the same big money issue uh, uh, in, in Israeli politics as, as you have it uh, here. You can say that big money, if you really have a lot of money and you own a media channel, then you can have influence. But, uh, and, and, we and even when you spend money on Hayom with the uh, newspaper? No, Israel Hayom. So, yeah. So, yeah, so, uh, so Israel Hayom obviously is very much affiliated. Sheldon Adelson's paper is the highest circulating paper in Israel. It's free. And it's free and it's, uh, and it's uh, associated with the prime minister. So, so although you're not allowed to donate to a politician, but you can provide to a politician a newspaper that will have his message and will be distributed to every second household. So there's, you know. There are methods. All right, let's go. But, Hold on. Yes. If I could hear, I assume everybody could hear. Is there an alternative for people who oppose Israeli policies besides BDS? Is that the bottom line? Can I quickly point out that we just had elections for the World Zionist Congress, and that Sidney Mintz will be representing the reform movement, which interestingly enough won the largest block of votes, about 40% of the delegates from Kutzlaritz, from outside of Israel, will be from that. The US. From the US. So it's very important to understand that there is a vehicle which most Jews in America are not aware of, highly political, by the way. But, the, but why don't you deal with the uh, broader question? First of all, it's a, it's a good question, and, and, uh, and you're right. I'm also concerned about this, the fact that those who oppose Israeli policy, uh, find themselves you know, joining uh, that group because that group has the, the core activists who are, as I mentioned, who are out there to get the, the Jewish state and to wreck it, but they have momentum, they have enthusiasm and so on. So those who, who have criticism, you tend to join something that exists because political activism uh, requires a lot of devotion, hard work, attention, resources, and so on. So uh, what, what you're saying uh, uh, makes sense. It does exist to some extent. I mean, you have, you, have, uh, you know, Peace Now and American Friends of Peace Now. You have J Street. Uh, there are all sorts of uh, organizations who criticize clearly Israeli policy, but are not uh, uh, out there to delegitimize, divest, sanction, wreck, ruin, uh, destroy the state of Israel. So I mean, let me, let me, I, just, let me just but I'm not, a, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on 
protest movements let me, let in America just, against Israel. Let me just quickly offer the observation that what Yochanan is saying is absolutely correct. The people who are involved in BDS really are committed to Israel's destruction. And all you have to do is be on the campus, as I am, with great frequency, and listen to the debates to understand it. What is particularly shocking to me, and why what we are doing tonight is so important, is the abysmal ignorance of those in the Jewish community and those who are friends of Israel. So there is a constructive element, which is why I personally was attracted to the IDI. Some of you in the room are on the left, some are on the right, but the IDI attracts a Benny Begin, the son of Menachem Begin, who is a Haver Knesset, who is certainly on the right, but it attracts people who are more to the left. And the trick is to work for reform within Israel in a constructive fashion. If I may be so bold as to say, it wouldn't matter what Israel did, it would not affect those who support BDS, because their goal is not reform of Israel, it is the elimination of Israel. And that's, unfortunately, in my judgment anyway, the sad reality. There is, I know there are many more questions I, I wanted to throw this in. Yes, sir. I'll go over to the left in a moment. Go ahead. Which is not a commentary on any politics. Go ahead. all heard the question? Good. Well, you're asking about a subject that I'm uh, a bit of a, a bit of an expert on, unlike the previous question that I, because uh, my main, I fell on my sword, so to speak, on the issue of the recruitment of ultra-orthodox. I, I, I headed a government committee for the recruitment of the ultra-orthodox in 2012. Uh, and, uh, the, and, and we put forward recommendations for uh, uh, a new recruitment bill that the idea was to put the ultra-Orthodox community on a trajectory of service over time and uh, in an evolutionary plot process, but ultimately to ensure that 80% of the ultra-Orthodox men would serve. And, and that's extremely important for the country, not only for, I would say, two reasons. One is that we want to preserve our current uh, uh, model of uh, uh, the, what we call the people's army model, the, the model that everybody serves at the age of 18 that is now at risk of crumbling. Why is it at risk of crumbling? Because more than 30% of our first graders are from ultra-Orthodox communities that do not serve. Then you add up 22, 23% of the uh, first graders that are from the Arab minority, and you see that more than 50% of the first graders are not even in part of the pile that is going to be called up for service. And then from the other less than 50%, you know, not everybody serves. Some have health problems, some are criminals, whatever. So you're in a situation where uh, somewhere, you know, unless we do something dramatic, somewhere between 60 to 65 or even 70%, if you 
add up women that many of them don't serve for other reasons, uh, many of them for false uh, declarations of being religious and so on, you're in a situation whereby in 12 years, 60 to 70% of Israeli 18-year-olds are not serving. Now, many of you are either Israeli or you know Israelis. The biggest sin in Israel is to be a friar, right? A sucker, quote unquote. That you're doing something and others are just getting, uh, uh, getting it for free. So, my prediction is that once we get into this situation and the Israelis that serve will internalize that this is the situation, you won't have a linear change that will take place slowly over time. Once they realize, well, we're the only ones who are sort of carrying the burden and risking our lives, it can sort of dramatically shift in a moment and say, okay, we also, we don't want to do it as well. And, uh, and I see our youth now, my job in reserves is to do the selection for the special forces units. We have amazing youth. We have amazing youth coming also from America and, and to serve. But, but we have to continue to create the conditions for that to take place. The second reason why we have to insist on a good recruitment bill, and that's why I basically led to the crumbling of a, or to the dissolution of a disintegration of the government in 2012 in an early election, is that that's the vehicle for change for the ultra-Orthodox community, for integrating the ultra-Orthodox community into Israeli society, service, uh, joint norms, uh, some uh, a common civic, uh, a common uh, civic denominator, and and also uh, acquiring skills that can help them to join the workforce. Because we know that they're going through an education system that doesn't prepare them to taking part in modern life in a modern economy. So the last station before they become adults and have big families is the military, and it's the strongest, biggest uh, institution that can only really take, do this socialization process. So that's the logic behind uh, why I also, why that became my main issue, and I was also, um, me and the, and the reform movement are the biggest targets of the uh, ultra-Orthodox community. The, the amount of, uh, you know, um, bad mouthing that I received, these, you know, obviously that I'm not at all Jewish, I'm a crusader that want to, wants to ruin Judaism and all, just because, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I want to save the, the Jewish state, but they see it differently. So that's why that issue was so important. Now, Lapid made some changes. Unfortunately, the changes... Explain he, Lapid's role. Lapid okay, had 19 seats in 2013 entered the government, insisted on a, he, they had to put uh, uh, a new recruitment bill because the previous one was canceled by the Supreme Court as non-constitutional. And, um, and Lapid uh, introduced a bill that after all the compromises was- uh, Watered down. Very much watered down, but as a somewhat slight improvement, symbolic maybe improvement, on the situation ante, before. <coughs> now even the symbol, they want to remove it. The ultra-Orthodox party is now, there's a coalition of 61 out of 120. So there's a majority of one. If one flips over, Netanyahu is no longer going to be prime minister. Now, out of the 61, there's 13 from the ultra-Orthodox, 13 of the ultra-Orthodox parties. 
So they basically have a grip on the coalition. And now they want to reverse the few achievements that were in the areas of religion and state. We, we pushed for a much opener, as IDI, much more pluralistic uh, conversion arrangement that is now at risk. The recruitment uh, uh, bill is at risk. Um, so that's the bad news. The good news is that uh, whoever uh, uh, succumbs to the uh, uh, extortion of the ultra-Orthodox parties will really come up against the mainstream of Israeli society that has good senses and, 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 uh, and would pay a dear political price. So I think that if Netanyahu will reverse many of the uh, 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 progress that was achieved in the previous term, that will give rise to whoever uh, will know how to capitalize on it in the Israeli center. So, you know, politics and public entrepreneurship is a cycle, needs perseverance, and, and therefore, I think even if it will change now, uh, it's not the last uh, scene in the opera. Okay, let's get, yes, sir. Can you all hear? I'll repeat, it's question has to do with the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. question is, what is the reaction to an independent state called Palestine? If we were talking politics of that kind tonight, I would be in this in the thick of it, as you know. But do you want to address, I know it's not IDI's concern. Yeah, as an, as an institution, we're not dealing with that issue. My personal opinion is well documented in, I don't know if many dozens, if not hundreds of uh, um, uh, statements and uh, speeches and so on. So. I, I won't elaborate too much, but the basic idea of a, of a two-state solution is uh, regardless, obviously, you have to have security arrangements. Regard, if you don't have security arrangements, it's like you didn't do anything. So it means demilitarization and, uh, and very strict uh, um, uh, monitoring. Uh, monitoring and very strict um, uh, um, uh, determinations regarding uh, the use of what what kind of weapons and the use of uh, the airspace and uh, electromagnetic space and so on. So obviously uh, it's not two states in the sense of two states that can just uh, do whatever they want, but the, but rather there's a clear arrangement and, and, and part of the package, a main part of the package of the Israeli demands would be and would have to be, and I'm sure would be if that would occur, security arrangements. And that's no. bipartisan left and right. Yeah, I want to leave this just, just to say this. Uh, this program tonight is sponsored by the Israel Action Committee. One of the goals of the Israel Action Committee, which is a brand new committee, is to bring programs here that would address precisely that question. Whether or not it belongs exactly in the context of the IDI, it's another issue. But for those of you who are interested, join the committee. Offer your points of view. 
And if you have program suggestions, that's the goal of what we're trying to do. Let me move on to the next question. Yes. Yes, yes. question is if as more and more religious uh, people become involved in education in the military and have rank does that endanger Israeli democracy I can't wait to hear the answer no uh, the the short answer is uh, uh, at this point there's no danger there are some phenomenon that need to be addressed but there's you know by and large the, the IDF as an institution I, I the my take or is, is a little, uh, uh, my observation is that it's a little mellower than the way you describe it. It's true that a change is taking place. In, ni in, in 1973 in the Yom Kippur War, about 40% of the combat officers were from kibbutzim. So, I mean, it was, uh, and, the, and the rest, you know, many were, you know, secular from towns and mushavim and so on. Today, uh, the, the face of the military is changing. However, it's, it's not as dramatic as being portrayed. It's true that the, uh, uh, that the national religious component of the combat soldiers has, is growing dramatically than what it was in 1973. But today, but there's still many, many other groups, you know. In Sayeret Matkal, where I serve and I do the selection, maybe a quarter come from uh, uh, national religious. And a quarter come from kibbutzim and moshavim, and uh, and 40 uh, percent from Ranana, uh, Tel Aviv, and places like that. So you know, it's not like uh, uh, it's true that the trend is that there's more national religious, but there's also a lot of others, and uh, and uh, it's true that the rabbinate is trying to insert its uh, its influence on uh, on the education uh, uh, branch of the military. And in some instances it succeeds, but ultimately the education branch is still in control. So uh, it's true that in some cases uh, there are some issues with uh, where, where uh, orthodox religious uh, combatants and officers are taking issue with the presence of women here and there. But ultimately the main trend is that more and more jobs and positions are opened up for women, and that the women in the Israeli military, I think, are playing the most central and important role than in any other military in the world. Basically, I can say there's no Israeli intelligence without the contribution of, uh, of women, and so on. So the institution, it's, uh, I, I serve now, when, when I answer this question, I, I can answer with some, a decent level of authority because I did serve for six years in the Defense and Foreign Affairs Committee and really experienced the IDF and, uh, from all of the dimensions. And, uh, and I think that the institution is so, and its, and its uh, norms are so uh, powerful that even when you have a national religious officers who move up in the ranks, 
They change more than they change the institution. Next question. Yes. Some of our basic laws are secured. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, yes, it's my fault. I was so engrossed in the question. The question is, uh, is there something the IDI proposes in terms of ensuring basic law which cannot be toppled by 61 seats, uh, 61 votes in Knesset? So look, some of the basic laws are uh, secured. And other basic laws uh, are protected, and then you need an absolute majority, i.e. more than 61, in order to change them, and so on. Others of specific paragraphs are, uh, are uh, uh, protected. But the whole effort, you know, today the whole effort of trying to, tank, to, uh, to play around with the basic laws, I think, is a, is a dangerous proposition, because there are some elements in the Knesset today that once you bring in a basic law, as I mentioned before, into the Law and Constitution Committee, you don't know what will come out of it. So I, I prefer at this point in time, given uh, uh, some of the populist uh, uh, sentiments, not to uh, uh, play around with them. I want to just point out the very questions we're posing about Israel, many of us pose about our own system in this country, that part of the dynamic of a democracy whether here or there, is to go through the tension of redefinition and of trying to define where we are. I am reminded that the vital role of the Supreme Court in this country, and we will hear at least two critical decisions within the next few weeks, is very similar to the Israeli system and shows the balance of power which exists under both systems. So I think this is something we need to bear in mind, and I know when I speak on the subject of American democracy and Israeli democracy, I always feel compelled to draw those analogies because we are dynamic as all democracies should be. Next question. Yes, in the back. Everybody heard him clearly. Good. Um, it is, well, if I may, 
the bottom line question that I take away is the respect for the orthodox even as the secular concerns are raised. And I would tag onto that question, do you, because not all orthodox are the same, everyone understands that, there are different degrees and variations. Uh, do we have traditional members of the traditional community who are involved in IDI? And I think that's an important question because maybe it helps to bridge that gap. So I think it's a very, very important question that you're, you're putting forward. And our key goal is, you know, when we talk about the U.S.-Israel relationship, we always, uh, we traditionally talk about the shared interests and shared values. So shared interests, uh, security interests, Israel in the region as a sort of a stable, reliable ally and so on. The shared values component is extremely important, probably even more than the shared interests, because even imagine if tomorrow Israel doesn't exist, it, won't, it will be bad for American national security policy, but somehow I think that America will survive. Um, but the shared values component is what really creates that bond, that commitment, that extra mile of, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, that ensures the, 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 the vitality and the strength of the relationship. Now we see it is our role to prevent the erosion of the shared values component. That's a broad, now I, I will address your, uh, the, the, the worst thing that can happen to us in Israel is if we uh, position our Jewish part of our, uh, of our national character as, as coming in conflict uh, with our uh, universal liberal part of our uh, of our uh, uh, character. So for us, uh, a Jewish and Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, a Jewish democratic state, this is our goal. Our goal as an institution is both intellectually and practically to demonstrate and to work towards for this combination to succeed together and to show that, they, that, you, that if you, you, you can be a good uh, uh, believing Jew and nevertheless respect the right, uh, respect the other, uh, believe in full equality and in all the other uh, democratic uh, principles. How do we do that? We do that, we have a, a major intellectual project led by orthodox uh, Israelis. My vice president, Professor Yedidia Stern, is a, is a believing uh, orthodox uh, Jew and we have on our uh, uh, staff, many of the scholars are uh, uh, orthodox believers. And their goal is really uh, uh, to, to find the overlaps, the, the, to, to demonstrate how the universal Western civilization and Jewish civilization actually to find the commonalities and to show that the ultimately that you can be very Jewish and nevertheless very much believe in equality, which what I'm saying for you is, uh, uh, you know, sitting here in San Francisco in a reform uh, 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 the nomination is, is uh, almost like I'm stating the trivial. But saying it in Israel, it's not trivial. And that's our goal. And uh, so that's one answer to your question. Now when you say the religious, the orthodox, you're, 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 obviously there's a difference between the national religious and the ultra-orthodox. Two different communities, two different challenges. Now, again, it's true, and I, I'm using your question to bring across another point. 
the cleavages or the uh, uh, the way Israeli society is, 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 is fragmented today, one fragmentation is Jew and Arab, which is the most, uh, you know, 80% are Jews, about 20% are Arab minority, and that's a very strong uh, dividing line in, in our society and a major challenge for the Israeli state to, uh, to bridge that, uh, that gap. But the other dividing line that is, uh, uh, that is uh, very apparent is level of religi religiosity. How orthodox are you? And, and today it tends that, uh, to be that the more you are orthodox, and, uh, then the more you tend to think that the, your Jewish component of your character needs to be at the expense of the democratic universal. And our goal is to say Israel should remain a democratic state and it should not be politicized. The fact that we are uh, of, uh, a vital democratic state does not mean that if you're in the right or in the left, it, it, there should be a difference. We want to bring democracy back to the center, back to the consensus, back to the believers and the non-believers, the religious and the secular, and so on. And, and that's our goal, and that's why it's so important for us to remain uh, non-partisan in order for our, uh, uh, for our main goal to, uh, to be uh, in consensus. Next question. Yes, sir. anti-democratic. Thank you. If, if, if I may, I just want to point one thing out. The Congress of the United States passed a law saying that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. The Supreme Court of the United States, a small group ruled yesterday on a vote that was with only three voting in favor, uh, the remaining justices six voting against, the opposite. So I'm only using it as an analogy to point out that the same criticism could, could be leveled that way. So uh, uh, I'll answer. Wait, wait. Good question. Let, 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 now that I've made a mistake, let him answer. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, I, I'll, I'll disregard it, it, the Supreme Court of the U.S. It was the decision, but go ahead. Okay, okay. all right. I'll go disregard ahead. it. The designation of whether the Congress of the United States had the power to designate Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. They said 
Very specifically, it was an executive decision to be made by the president, and they upheld the president's decision. Go ahead. Forgive me. Forgive me, I was unclear. They are precisely correct. I conceded. Go ahead. Okay. Um, you, you, ca you came up with the... Go ahead. It's okay. It's okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. You came up with two points. One about the electoral reform. And, and when you come up with electoral reform, there's always the balance to strike between governance and representation. The more you bring governance and stability, it's at the account of less representation. If we have two bigger parties, it means that the parties actually, are, their job is to be the mediator of many of the conflicts of the different groups. And in this respect, we don't have a Knesset of each group has its own party, but rather uh, uh, interests have to be accumulated together. So you're right, but, but, but the situation today is that we have so much representation and not enough governance. So it's great that everybody is represented, but the main long-term challenges of the state are not being uh, uh, looked after. And that's the, the primary role of a government, is to make sure that uh, the state of affairs are, are, uh, are looked after. So that's, that, that's the first uh, uh, part of your question. The second, about the right of judici judicial review of the Supreme Court and the fact that you uh, label it uh, uh, undemocratic. The basic, um, uh, the basic idea of separation of power says that there's the legislator, the executive branch, and the judicial uh, branch. Now, the judicial branch is not elected. I mean, there's a system of election of judges. But the idea is the judges are elected for life. They, are, they have a fundamental job that is different than politicians. Even in a, de in a democracy, one has to understand that democracy is not only about 